Now there are fewer, fewer songs that are sweeter than those two. Amen? It's wonderful to listen to you sing. I can only imagine how God must feel when you're singing to Him. I enjoy just listening to you sing as a bystander and a partner and a brother. I want to remind you that we're in the midst of 40 days of praying. If you don't have a prayer partner, I encourage you to look for one, pray for one. If you need help finding one, get a hold of us at the office. But God moves in request to the prayer of His children. And we're told He will do in answer to prayer that which He would not do if we did not pray. Praying changes us. So I'm, I'm asking you, join the journey. And as we head to Jesus on prophecy, if it doesn't, if it's not filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not going to live. But it is a living message if we don't kill it. So I'm asking you to pray. Pray about the image. You've heard some of the testimonies. Our head deacon spent an hour last night out in the parking lot with one couple that had come to see the image from all the way over by Hartford. He had seen the article or the picture in uh, the Herald Palladium. If you didn't see it, it's on the bulletin board, a big picture of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's entitled Nebuchadnezzar Standing Tall. And a family came out here yesterday, and one of the kids thought maybe it was Goliath, and Bob had to tell him that's a different story. So we're on a journey. Let's go together. Let's pray. Lord, bless this time. Anoint our hearts. May a sweet spirit be in this place. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless the study, bless the decisions. May we be able and willing through your power to follow your lead and to make the changes you're calling us to make. And may many be benefited because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When I was a young pastor, I picked up one of the Adventist Reviews and I saw a very interesting article. It had, the, it had a uh, drawing of a shepherd. Kind of an outline. Had his staff in his hand. And the title got my attention. It was entitled, Give Us Leaders, Not Managers. Now, that would be an interesting article to read. And there is a difference between management and leadership. Although a good leader needs to be a good manager, or should be, especially if they work for the church, because they have to wear many hats. But leading and managing are two different things. But what intrigued me the most was who had written the article. It was written by two Methodist professors. Now, I'm not sure why this is, but on my computer right now, every time I, I open up my web browser... Uh, because I had done some research and probably because it's trying to check back into that uh, same uh, Gmail portal, I have the statistics of the Methodist Church over the last hundred years. And it is a very discouraging thing. Now, our roots are out of Methodism, primarily. And so many of the habits, the great awakening that swept across Europe and America in the early 1800s was a Methodist movement. And the Methodist church and the Methodist experience broke off into lots of churches. When you talk about the United Methodist Church, that's an organization that brings into it several Methodist movements. But I want to tell you, if you wanted to graph the membership of the Methodist church, all you need is a cliff. 
And this should make us very sad. It's just one more indication of the death of Protestant religion in America. And you would say, oh, but pastor, the megachurches, yes, the megachurches. That's a subject for another day. Give us leaders, not managers. You've heard me say as of late, if you get along well with people, that's good. You can follow. If you help people get more done, that's good. You can manage. And I'm paraphrasing from John Maxwell. But if you can help people grow, that's even better. You're a leader. It's the hardest work to do, but it's the most important. And as I've quoted from Edward Friedman in his book, Failure of Nerve, you know that what is most critical in the role of a leader is the emotional independence to make the difficult decisions and weather the ride through all the way to the other side of someone's maturation. His phrase is from the parents to the presidents, Jewish psychoanalyst, deceased. And yet his words speak on. So this morning, I want to look at the story of the golden calf. Take out your bulletins. I want to read the quote we have right there before we get going. Because today I'm preaching for more leaders, not more managers. The quote comes from Manuscript Released. It's in a segment entitled Reflecting Christ in your bulletin. I want to thank Simon Arkazinski for his beautiful and intriguing photographs on the inside of this bulletin, one of our VES students. It says, When Moses went up to the Mount of God to receive from Jehovah the tablets of stone... The children of Israel were for the time left under the leadership of Aaron. But Aaron showed himself to be weak and yielding, ugly words for leaders, when he should have stood firm for principles. Words, principle or principles. These elements are critical for reflection. They're worthy of some serious meditation today. He should have stood firm for the principles of righteousness. Yielding to the request of the people, he made the golden calf they demanded. And in her commentary on this story, she says, This is a time for decided action. Those who stand in positions of responsibility must not follow the example of Aaron. My sermon this morning is entitled, Is This the Time? I wonder if we're not on our way out of spiritual Egypt, but we might be running into the same challenges that they had. Indeed, I suspect we are. For whether it's the home or the school or the church or whether it's society at large, we have a very interesting phenomena going on. Now, this sermon will be substantively the same, but somewhat different than the last one. And I'm going to start it a little bit different. Last week, I took home the people who drove the image out. At least I drove them to the airport so they could go home. And while I'm driving around to the airport, I'm having a good conversation with them. But when I turn around to come home, I decide I'll listen to the radio. So I turn on a talk news station. And while I'm listening, they have an interview with Vincent Gill. Vincent Gill's married to Amy Grant. I don't know if he had won a recent award. I think he had produced a new album. And I was intrigued by the conversation between the interviewer and the interviewee. But pretty soon he started saying something that began to bother me. He almost stumbled over himself with how many times he referred to somebody as a non-judgmental person. 
And after a while, it was like, and, and it got even worse because it wasn't enough for him to laud the accolades of modern affirmation on this individual. He went a little bit farther and he said, and not like all those evangelicals. Now, I don't want anybody here to be a judgmental person. Can you say amen? But I'm afraid modern society and the church have an unfortunate agreement on the idea that nothing should be judged. Now, when Jesus writes in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged, that word can be used for the word condemn. Jesus was not saying take a mindless, numbing, relationship-destroying, dysfunctional absence of evaluation into your life and everything will be okay. Nobody will say anything bad about you and you shouldn't say anything bad about anybody else. That's not what Jesus was saying. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And if there was anybody who had iron sharpening iron moments with his constituents, the nation of Israel, it was Jesus. And he is the active agent of the Godhead in the Old Testament. The story we're going to read about today is Moses dealing with Jesus. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And they wanted to stone him. Now, while we should not be condemnatory, there is a huge difference about the kind of affirmation that makes people feel good while they're practicing soul-destroying habits. And I want you to understand that good judgment and much love are at the foundation of effective leadership. But the idea that we go along with the world while they all want to feel good no matter what they do, and we plunge ourselves into these soul-destroying habits and vices is a stench in the nostril of God. We are not to be negative, condemning people. But in the same breath, we are to be loving, principled people. The Bible says the righteous contend with the wicked. And if we never have the ability, through lack of substance of character, to say no, under the influence of my stewardship of leadership, this will not happen. Then we will find ourselves in the same place Aaron did. And by the way, Aaron's decision cost 3,000 people their lives. And if you read out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, you can see that God was so upset with his failure of leadership, Moses says, that he intended to execute him as well. At the end of this day, after everybody has convinced the new leader to do it their way, 3,000 people, their corpses, are on the plains beneath Mount Sinai. It's only been a few days since they all stood around the mountain and listened to the thunder and watched the lightning and heard the voice of God and said, all that you have said we will do. And a few days later, they find themselves stressed out at the absence of Moses. Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Is this the time? I'd like to suggest to you today that if you're not careful, you will find yourself watching your children and your loved ones slip away, caught powerfully in the grip 
of this society's allure and all the while acting like they are your children and your siblings' friends or even your parents if the roles are reversed, all the while wooing and beguiling and seducing the ones we love when what this world needs right now and our homes and our schools and our churches is somebody to say, wait just a minute. Exodus chapter 32. Moses is on the mountain. The people are missing their visible manifestations of God. The manifestation God has given them is the cloud by day and the pillar by night. They are not without manifestation. And by the way, this generation has received more manifestation of divine power than any generation in the history of man. But there is one generation that will receive more. I think it could be this one. We are not to fear as the signs multiply around us, as the birth pangs for deliverance come upon this world. Friends, God is going to take us on a journey out of Egypt into that heavenly Canaan, and He's going to manifest Himself with greater power because this time He won't be saving only the literal sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to be saving all the faithful all around the world for the final time. And when He manifests Himself for the final global deliverance, it's going to be greater than the manifestation of the plagues and the Red Sea and the water and the food. Nobody needs to be afraid unless they love the world. And that makes me afraid every once in a while. Because life's pretty good. I don't expect the KJB to show up at my door tonight after the sun goes down. I'm not afraid like the pastors in El Salvador that I might be stopped and held at gunpoint and extorted for money. I get a salary every month. I live in a nice home and drive a nice car and come to a nice church with nice people. Moses is gone. It's important that you know that Moses is gone. God is specifically stretching this people. They've had Moses at every moment. But now they are left on the floor of the desert around Sinai and they have a chance to start thinking about and talking with and meditating about God Himself. God allows people to be stretched out. And any leader that understands people and growth knows that if you're going to change somebody, they're going to have to go through some growing experiences and you don't step in the way to save them from it. There are some people who have never learned to manage money. Some people never learned to manage their time. Some people, they've been so, they've been so protected and, and coddled all their life that they come to adulthood and they are weak. This world requires some strength. I'm so thankful for a mother who would not do for, the, for me the things that she knew I needed to learn to do myself. But here they are. You know, when you're a new Christian, God steps in. He answers prayer after prayer after prayer. But after you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes He says, I'm not going to answer these so quick. I want you to wait on me. Do you trust me? Have I been faithful in the past? This was the journey for Israel. 
Instead of all of a sudden, you know, running around, wringing their hands, we don't have Moses, we don't have Moses. Moses himself was in the potential place of being deified by the people, which is what made striking the rock such an offense later on. No, they're not going to get a sign, but you need to know that the thunder on the mountain is still there because Moses is meeting with God and the pillar by day of cloud and by night of fire is still there. It's not as if they were without the manifestation of God's presence, but God keeps Moses up on the mountain long enough for them to have a little growth moment. And it could have been, but it wasn't. Verse 1 of 32, chapter 32. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and they said to him, Come make us a God who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. This stretch was a strain. Now I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. I want to show you the curses and the blessings. Deuteronomy, about three books over, chapter 28. Now you need to know that the chapters of 27 and 28 in Deuteronomy are the blessings and the curses. You need to know that the results of disobedience and the curses take up about twice as much narrative space as the blessings. The curses, that is. Twice as much narrative space as the blessings. Why? Because we are so prone to leaving the path of righteousness, God wanted to make it very clear that there would be dire results if they deviated. His love would not change. His shepherding would be constant. But after all they had seen and been through, here they are in the promised land. This is a generation later than where we're reading in the book of Exodus. Genesis or Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. I want you to see the very first curse. Now, how did this work? You put six tribes on Mount Ebal. Those were the children of Bil- Bilha and Zilpah, along with Reuben and Zebulun. Now, Reuben violated the marriage bed. And I'm not sure why Zebulun's on Mount Ebal, but that's where the curses The people who say amen when the reading of the law, they say amen after every curse. Over on Mount Gerizim are the children of Leah and Rachel. And after the Levites who are standing in the valley, and by the way, this is the same place where the woman at the well met Jesus. That well is down in the valley near Sychar. And when she refers to our fathers worshipped on this temple, she's talking about Mount Gerizim. And so there are the children of Leah and Rachel, and here are the children of their handmaids. And the Levites are in the middle of the valley, and they're reading out the blessings and the curses. And every time they read a blessing, the people on Mount Gerizim say, Amen. And every time they read a curse, the people on Mount Ebal say, Amen. I want you to see what the very first curse is. Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. So there are the Levites, they're getting ready to read, and here we go. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in what? What does your Bible say? Secret. Here's a curse, the first of what will be several, 
The first curse is for someone who has the audacity, who has the spiritual rebellion and daring to set up an idol in some secret corner of his house. Imagine the sense of indignancy in the heart of God after he has manifest himself as the ever-present God and Aaron is getting ready to roll over and cave into the idea of a corporate worship system surrounding this golden calf. Now when you come down to the end of the curses and the blessings... I want you to look over at chapter 28. I want you to see just how serious this is. Chapter 28, verse 32. What's on the line? Thank you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. While your eyes look on and yearn for them. And the King James Version says, but there will be no might in your hand. This version says, and there will be nothing you can do. How many of us have stood by watching while the enemy of our happiness, not a Babylonian kingdom, but a Babylonian mentality, has been seducing our children into the embrace of the world. And I'm here to tell you the idolatrous opportunities in this age are multiplied and varied. Although they are not automatically recognized, how many of our children are being seduced and drawn away from us in our very presence and we feel almost powerless to do anything about it? This is what's at stake, friends. It's our churches and our schools. It's our future grandchildren and our children's well-being. It's the vitality of their marriages. What I'm talking with you about here today is a principled approach to Christianity where the Holy Spirit can bring conviction, take the Word of God and make it live, and we have enough confidence of what leadership looks like and what's motivating it to do the right thing. But today... I want to tell you that in those blessings and in those curses, there's some very interesting promises. Look at chapter 28, verse 7. Chapter 28, verse 7. These are the blessings. It says, The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways. And as I was reading over this, it struck me that really Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are a leadership covenant as well. Now I'm here to tell you, back when my children were very little, I established the fact that their mother and I were the leaders in the home. And if anyone ever cares to read the spirit of prophecy, you'll find out that the first lesson the child needs to learn is the lesson of obedience. Pity the teachers who receive the children who have never learned this lesson. Have mercy is right. But you know what? 
I am not willing to go through life without any might in my hand. And if they come at me from one direction, I'd like to see God stand up on my benefactor as my benefactor, and I'd like to watch them flee seven ways. This is a leadership covenant. When we abide by the principles of heaven, we do not find ourselves powerless, although our children do at times choose to go other ways. But we have not lost our respectability when we practice loving, principled Christianity. You have to practice loving, principled leadership in the home. Your children must know in our schools, in our churches, that the leaders are motivated by love, that they go beyond what they would ever have to do for money, but they will not violate conscience and they will not be disloyal to the God of heaven for the sake of favor, popularity, position, or anything else. Aaron is there before the people. Moses is gone. And they come around him, and it's a strange thing that Amram and Jochebed can have three children, and they can be so very different. This is Moses' elder brother, but he does not have the character of Moses. And when they start pressing him, he makes a fatal mistake. He begins to dialogue with them. If you are a leader, you need to understand once you have a rebellious or obstinate spirit in your presence, dialogue will do you very, very little good. If you begin to dialogue with someone who resists and resents and rebels against your duly appointed, God-ordained, authorized authority, you ought not to engage them in dialogue. Just think of Pilate. It's not just Aaron. If Pilate would have exercised his duly appointed authority by the empire of Rome and a sense of principles about justice, he would have dismissed the crowd at the beginning. But the longer you engage with someone whose spirit is completely upside down, the better the chance is yours, your leadership will be twisted and your influence will mar the experience of those who trust you and look to you. You see, friends... Leadership requires a staking down of principle very early on in what you're doing. Otherwise, you become squeezed into the mold of the world. Yes, Israel's about to be led into apostasy by a pastor. Are you listening? Israel is going to be led into apostasy by a pastor. Pastors are not God. Please do not use them to alleviate your convicted conscience. Please do not use them to do something that the Bible says or the spirit of prophecy and principle of precept says is wrong. Please do not go to find relief from the conviction of God when he tells you to do something to a pastor. Please don't go to find your way out of that conviction from a pastor. Pastors were never to be between you and God. And wise pastors don't put themselves in that position. You walk out of here today and don't like this message, it was called the divine worship power, and the, the young woman who prayed here, Miss Dent, prayed that the words that I say up here would come from God. And while I'm fallible, God does have the ability to apply them specifically to your life and to the preacher's. Aaron makes a fatal mistake to enter into dialogue with people who have the wrong spirit and the wrong direction. And the only way it goes from there is down. But you need to know something. 
Aaron did have authority. It was God appointed to Moses and through Moses to Aaron, and Aaron's failure to exercise it resulted in thousands losing a chance to continue this earthly sojourn. Authority is an evil word today, especially moral authority. It just so happens to be, however, that as our society implodes morally, indulgence, actualization, these things that supposedly bring freedom are actually bringing a curse. The boomerang of the values of the 60s is coming around to take us out from the backside. It's absolutely imperative that our parents exercise proper, duly constituted, God-given, and will be held responsible for authority. And it's important that you're not taking your cues about how to raise your children from the latest self-help guru on esteemism for your child. Read the Bible. What we're about to read right here is Jesus in the Old Testament dealing with his erring children. The principles for leadership, especially parental leadership, are woven all through the Scriptures. Study them out. Reflect on them. And take away from it that which will probably look fairly old school. I'm sorry for all the people who stood at the judgment bar of their parents' parenting without enough humility to know that honor is what the commandment says. Now, if you've been abused or something that's way off the charts, that's different. But our generation, my generation, has found itself quite cocky and confident to decry the mistakes of the previous generation. It just appears, however, that we're not getting ready to hand our children and our grandchildren a better world. Something's wrong about that picture. Authority properly exercised is salvation to people. It's not for you to have a big head. It's not for you to dominate and dictate, although rebellious people will call you a dictator. Rebellious folks have learned how to manipulate and fight back. Rebellion, by the way, the Bible says, is like the sin of witchcraft. Pretty ugly association. The proper exercise of authority is salvation for people. If my mother had not reined me in in certain moments, if my mother had not disciplined me, where might my life have spiraled out of control at? Authority exercised with kindness is the model God has left throughout the Scriptures for us. But people are afraid to exercise authority because they can be criticized for not being nice. And nice is important to this generation. Now, let me be clear. Nobody needs to be unnice when they're exercising authority. They just need to know they'll be called unnice. So, Mo, so Aaron thinks if I ask them to give up their earrings, that'll kind of get to them and they won't do this. I want you to be back at Pilate's court. We'll offer them Barabbas, 
And they won't want Jesus. But when the devil is in the crowd, the direction they're going isn't going to be stopped by a few little speed bumps of pride and money. And I don't know what it's like. If you've only been two months gone from Egypt, there must have been an awful lot of ear piercing going on because they were poor slaves before, but they got all that jewelry and they sure put it on fast. Maybe the holes in their ears hadn't even healed all the way yet. But the Bible has some pretty graphic language to talk about them getting it out. And I suspect there's a few bloody earlobes around the camp, but they're going to get their earrings together and Aaron is going to be the one that fashions the calf. It's not enough that he fashions the calf, though. He fashions the calf, and he's now riding a wave of of immense popularity. And he goes farther. Turn back to Exodus chapter 32. It's not enough that there's an idol at the base of Sinai. There's going to be an altar as well. Remember, he's the leader of the Levites, or will be. Verse 4. He took from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, that gold, into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel. I want you to hear Aaron saying this, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And he made a proclamation and he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and they offered burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play, which is another way of saying after they were full and drunk, they began enjoying things that should never have been enjoyed in public and with the wrong people. Clearly it was a licentious, immoral experience. Imagine that. One of the worst parties that's ever gone on in the history of earth is happening over at the base of Mount Sinai. It's a drunken orgy. And Moses is up on the mountain, and the cloud is still there, and the thunder and lightning is still there, and the people are down on the floor of the desert, interacting with each other in evil ways, and Aaron is there as the presiding patriarch, I guess feeling pretty good about it all. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 7. Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten image and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. Now, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. I wish I had a bit more time. If you're a leader and you have not been a pliant Aaron, then you have paid a high price, whether it's as a parent or a leader of another sort. And if God were to come to you in those hard moments and say, you know what, I'm going to let you out of this. You don't have to do this job anymore you'd be pretty ready to say, God, would you hand me the release papers? I want to sign them right now. But Moses didn't do that. And God put him in a posture to mediate and be an intercessor. There's Moses praying for God's people. I'm going to take you just to the very end. Moses comes down off the mountain. God didn't tell him how bad it was. 
Joshua says, sounds like there's fighting going on down there. And Moses says, no, I'm afraid not. But Moses doesn't understand how horrific it is. And as he comes down off the mountain from being in the presence of God, he is overwhelmed with the evil. And there where the people can see him, he breaks the tablets, strides through the midst of the congregation, grabs the calf, and throws it in the fire. He grinds it up to pieces, has to deal with his lying brother, and in the midst of it all, he calls out a people who will be faithful. The Levites rally to him. 3,000 people die. And within a few months of having left Egypt, a crisis of leadership has cost people daddies and mommies and people brothers and sisters. Friends, is this the time? Should we not spend time with God to understand what our God-ordained duty is relative to the sphere of our influence? Is this a time for weak-willed, spineless people who are content to watch Babylon woo their families away from them and have no might in their hand? Or ought we not to claim the blessings of Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God said, I'll make you the head, not the tail. And they may come at you one way, but they're going to run away seven. Ought we not to make a new commitment to what it means to be a leader and to understand that popularity and favor and the pliancy of the people is never a way to chart a course to higher ground? Whether you're standing before the kids in the classroom or sitting at the table with your children, whether you're a teacher in one of our schools or whether you're a pastor or a leader or a father or a mother or a grandma or a grandpa, if you want to take your children out of this barren desert, out of the slavery of this world to the better land, you cannot practice the leadership of a man like Aaron. You will have to decide that the price of disfavor and being misunderstood is worth it. And when you see them on the other side, it'll all be cheap enough. Your job is to take people from immaturity to maturity. By God's grace, you're called to bring them into a posture of submission when rebellion and willfulness is the case in the course. And if you hadn't noticed, our kids grow up and make more money than we do right out of the gate, and they don't really need their parents, they don't think. But you didn't stop being a parent just because your child hit the supposed mature age of 18 or 21. And while you don't direct and guide the same way, the failure of you to fulfill your role may be the eternal loss of their lives. What is my hope? My hope is... But on the other side, I'll have a little family reunion, a big family reunion, with everybody that was under the sphere of my influence. I'm thankful that love is the real foundation of true leadership. And I'm thankful that the people who nurtured me could endure the lack of my love towards them, but their love never wavered. That's called relational maturity. That's what's needed. Let's press together. May the bond of affection make us one. May we be faithful to each other, faithful to God, faithful to our charges. May we not be afraid of being misunderstood, for indeed it is the lot of leaders. Why would the Methodist professors write, give us leaders, not managers? Because managers never make the call that stretch and strain and grow people and take them to higher ground. But we're pressing on the upward way.
And so I'm appealing to you today. May you follow the principles and precepts of this word with love in your heart and trust God to make you the head, not the tail. And when they come at you one way, say, God, take me through this. I often praise God that He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. While I'm walking, I'm swimming against the stream in the 21st century, and so are you probably. If God wasn't guiding the way, we'd be out of business and closed down. But until God gets out of the way, let's go confidently with Him all the way to the new Jerusalem. And let's take our children with us. That's what Moses said to Pharaoh when he said, you can go but leave your children. And Moses said, oh, no, no, no. We're taking our children with us. I want might in my hand. I need to be respected. To be respected, I need to be principled and loving and consistent and true. And by God's grace, anybody who wants to be close to the anchor of love, at least the ones who know me best, come sit under the shade of my tree. Come eat food under the banner of my love. And may we enjoy the journey all the way. This is the time. May we rise up and be faithful leaders. Amen.